The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. I had a conversation in the lobby last week, and a lot of conversations, as a topic like this, um, our series is called Jesus on, the Mo- on Money. It, this kind of stirs it up for a lot of people because it's really easy to see success in this, and it's really easy to see failure in this. Okay? Both of those things become readily apparent pretty quickly when you start to work through the principles of God's word. So lots of conversations in the lobby. This one woman came up to me, and I'm not sure if she's in this service or was in the last one, but she came up to me last week in the lobby, and she, um, she said, I wish you had taught this to me uh, 60 years ago. She said, there's been a lot of heartache in my life, and I've lost a lot of money in my lifetime. Now, notwithstanding the fact I wasn't alive 60 years ago to teach her, uh, that, that was the first problem, but I wish she had heard those things too. I wish someone had taught her how to manage her money in a way that was biblical and godly and according to uh, God's will for her. I wish that it had happened for her. But I want to take what she said in this kind of cautionary tale kind of way, or the way we would say it is uh, really as a prophetic word to us, a prophetic warning That if we're committed to hearing what Jesus has to say about money, and if we're willing, having heard that, to make the changes that we ought to be making, I'm going to tell you, that's going to reap benefits in the immediate, okay? It's going to, you're going to be blessed right now, but beyond that, decades later, you're not going to be saying what that woman said to me in the lobby last week. Instead, you're going to be saying, I heard this teaching X number of years ago, and it transformed my life, and I've been blessed ever since. And that's what I want for each one of you. That's what the Lord would want for each one of you. I hope that's what you want for yourself, and I hope you're leaning in to hear everything we're going to talk about today. So we've been kind of building this case. Um, uh, you own your money. It doesn't own you. And, and when you own your money, here's where we're going today, uh, last week, when you own your money, there's freedom. And when you have freedom, what comes at the end of that is power. The power of God's Holy Spirit in your life to do everything God is laying before you to do. So that's where we're going to go when I'm financially free. I have the power. Three things we're going to look at. Bless my family, uh, help the hurting, and fund the mission. Let's start with the first one there. Uh, bless my family. Now, I like you have a responsibility to take care of my own family. I have the responsibility to provide for myself, to provide for my wife, to provide for my three kids. And in fact, we're going to see there's even a responsibility beyond my generation to provide for um, future generations. And um, let's look at some verses here that are going to help us with this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Uh, Paul says this to the Thessalonian believers, work with your hands so that you will not be dependent on anyone. General principle there, uh, you need to have a job. We talked about some of this last week. You need to have a job and you need to be providing for yourself so that you are not dependent on the generosity of others to do the very things that God has laid on you to do. When you work hard, and in our small groups this past week, it was all about budgeting. You ought to be doing that. 
Okay, when you work hard and you have a budget and you live within it and you spend less than you bring in, there's power in that. God can bless that. And um, this is just something the Lord wants us to do. And uh, that's kind of the positive encouragement side of it. You ought to be working with your hands. You ought to be providing for your family. But listen to the warning that comes with it. First Timothy 5.8. Paul says to Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Oh, it just got real. I mean, that's, that's, that's heavy, if not harsh. That that's the level, if you're not providing for your family, Paul's saying to the pastor of the church in Ephesus to say to his church, he's saying to him, this is like being unsaved. This is like you're still in your sins and you're not following Jesus if you're not paying the freight for your family. All right, that's, I, don't, I don't need to say anything more about that, I think. Beyond that, we read that it's a good thing to leave an inheritance for future generations. So take care of things now. Leave an inheritance. Proverbs 13, 22 says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So that's a good thing. So you ought to have a will. You ought to be saving. You ought to be taking care of your own needs. You ought to make sure that you're cared for in your own retirement so you're not dependent on anyone. And then beyond that, you ought to try as best you're able to save some up. A good man does this. According to Proverbs, a good man does this. You ought to be able to leave something so that when you pass from this life, your children and your children's children are blessed by that. All right? That's, I'm, just, I'm just reading the word of God. That's what it says. And you can only do that, and this is where we're going, you can only do that if you're free financially, you own your money and it doesn't own you because if you have a crazy amount of debt and you're not able to do this, or if your lifestyle is, is too rich and you're not able to do this, okay, so this is only gonna come if you're free financially and being free financially, you have the power of God's Holy Spirit to actually do these things. All right, bless my family. Ready for number two? <laughs> You're like, I don't know. That was really a hard one. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm ready for number two. All right, help the hurting. Bless my family, help the hurting. Uh, helping the hurting is really the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And when you think about what the gospel's all about, when you think about the purpose of, of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, the Bible tells us that God uh, loved the world so much that he sent his son to the world, and that was really a rescue mission. We were in this super desperate situation, uh, caught in our sin, and as a result of our sin, uh, under the condemnation of death, not just physical death, but now eternal death, second death, which is eternal separation from God. And the reality is because we found ourselves in that situation, so desperate, there's no way out of it. Doesn't matter what we try. You can live the most moral life that you think you can live. You can uh, give money to charity. You can uh, serve other people. You can you just be a good person. Be very religious. You can do all of that, and it's not enough to make up the deficit that you have, the sin deficit between you and God. The gap is still there. You're still condemned. Death is still uh, your destination. 
So this is like a, the desperate of the most desperate situations that we find ourselves in and, and the very definition of what it needs, what it means to actually need help. I need someone else to come and rescue me. Well, only one could do that and his name was Jesus Christ and he came to this earth um, uh, out of a, a love gift from the Father and, and and gave his life on the cross, was resurrected on the third day, and what resulted from that in the resurrection was the power of the resurrection dispensed into each one of our lives if we would choose to follow Christ. That power of the resurrection is what we're talking about here. That the freedom that we have through obedience to the biblical principles on finances releases that resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our life so we truly feel like we're alive in this very area of our lives. Now God is able to do this, listen, because, and this is what relates to our series, God's able to do that for us, he's able to help us because, listen, he's not indebted to anyone. God's not beholden to anyone. And so with all of the vast storehouse of all of the riches of all of the universe available to him, including the most precious of those things, his only son, because God is not indebted to anyone, he was able to spend that which he had to help us in our most desperate situation. Now, if, if you and I are gonna embody the gospel in a very practical way, if we're gonna model what Jesus has done for us, what the Father has done for us, then we're gonna get ourselves into a financial position where we are literally able to help those who are in need. Where we are indebted to no one and we are free because we've uh, eliminated our debts and, and got our lifestyle under control and therefore the money is ours to dispense as we choose and with our hearts aligned with the Lord, what that, what that is gonna mean is that when the needs are in front of us, when the help is required, we're gonna be able to move and help and embody the gospel in that way. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed, there's a lot of needs around us. Have you noticed that? So many needs around us, some of them inside the church, many of them outside of the church. And we've talked a lot in the past several months about um, 7 George Street, this property that we're uh, moving to acquire uh, as a place of our own. And uh, one of the things, I go there frequently. It's kind of uh, on the path between our current office and, and, and home. And so I'm, I'm usually driving along Ann Street and often I'll just pull in onto George and I'll go through the parking lot and I'll sit there as I did yesterday morning. And I sat in the parking lot for a little while and I prayed and I thought about things and I dreamed about it and almost every time I'm on that property, you know what I see? A homeless person, a street person. Almost every single time. Now we've been meeting for the last 10 years out here in the Barry suburbs. You know what I'm saying? We're kind of on the outskirts of all of that and we don't see a lot of it down here. We have our nice uh, shiny subdivisions and our, uh, our, and our strip plazas and all of that. But when, when you go where we're gonna go, just, just four and a half miles north of here, when you go up there, it changes the entire demographic of what we're gonna be facing when we move into that neighborhood. I mean, if any of us think that we're just gonna take our nice, pretty little church and just kind of move it up there and it's gonna be all the same, I just gotta tell you, it's not gonna be exactly the same. And we've gotta have it on our hearts and minds how we're actually gonna to respond to that. 
Because we can't, you know, I've got this story of the Good Samaritan kind of in my mind. And it's not going to be good enough that if the homeless person is at the north doors, that I just go in through the south doors. It seems to me that Jesus addressed that already. And so we've got to have some kind of response. And I love this. And just this past week, in fact, I was thinking about this and how, how are we going to respond to this? But I hadn't yet talked to anybody on my team about it. I hadn't talked to our elders, hadn't talked to our staff about it. Just kind of mulling it over, thinking it through myself. And then in a meeting this week, Pastor Roger, who has the biggest heart in this church. Do we know that? That guy's got like a massive heart. That's like his best thing, for sure. That's like his best thing. And, and he, he says to me in a meeting, he says, you know what, I've already met with the biblical soul care team and we're already starting to discuss about how we're gonna care for the homeless and street people that are around the building. And I love that the initiative is already there, the heart is already there, the, just the desire inside of him and his team. How are we gonna respond? How are we gonna, this is what we're looking at, how are we gonna help the hurting? How are we gonna help those in need? Now I get, I get that we can't help everyone, all of the time. But there needs to be some evidence in all of our hearts that we get this, that there's a softness to it. That when I see somebody uh, who's in a desperate situation, whether again they're in the church or outside of the church, that my heart melts a little bit for that. And that I have it in my mind how I can possibly respond and help those who are on the margins. And the reasons for that are pretty clear in the scriptures. So let me give you a couple of verses. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 42. Give to the one who begs from you. Now some people beg directly and that's gonna happen. They're gonna knock on our doors at 7 George Street as sometimes they do at, at, at our office on Bayfield Street. They knock on the door and they literally come and they ask for things. And more often than not, we help them. I want you to know that we do that. Um, a lot of people beg in, in more official ways. Uh, going to the food bank and registering and, and getting food is a form of begging or stopping by the Busby Center or, or getting a meal at the Bayside Mission or spending the night there or in out of the cold. Those are all kind of institutionalized, formal ways of begging. And to the extent that we're engaging with our community to donate to those agencies, to participate and volunteer, to contribute to 5,000 hours and be involved in those agencies, that's that's fulfilling Matthew 5.42, to give to the one who begs from. Give your time, give your resources, give your money, give your energy. Express your love in these very tangible, tangible ways. And we have to be engaged in that kind of thing. But as a Christ follower, you have an obligation to be assisting those who are at the bottom of the bottom, who are living on the margins. And how are each of us? I'm not hiding behind the fact that the church does it institutionally or corporately, but how am I doing it? Where am I engaging in all of this? You can't help everyone, but you should be helping someone. And if you don't, if you don't have the spirit of the good Samaritan in you, that's a problem. And Jesus thought so because that's why he told the story. So that's Matthew 5.42. And then let's look at this in Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10, uh, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's pretty broad sweeping. Now notice, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
And so there's a, spe- there's a sense here in which the family of God, what we have going here is it gets special consideration that I really want to love on those who love Jesus and are part of this body. And I'm going to make sure that within here, there are no needs that are going unmet. We ought to take care of our own first, uh, but not exclusively. Okay, we take care of our own first, but not exclusively. And the challenge is, if you're not experiencing the freedom of owning your money, you're not going to be able to do this. If you have too much debt again, or if your lifestyle is such that it's consuming too much of your monthly budget, then you're not going to have the freedom and the power cannot be expressed to actually help those who are in need and who are hurting. Even if you want to do it. My indebtedness is the thing that prevents me from doing it. My lack of cash flow is the thing that's stopping me from helping the hurting. That needs to be dealt with because when you are free, you have the power to help the hurting in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen? All right, that's the first two. And now this is a very content-heavy message and we're gonna spend the rest of our time on this third one. And... um, I don't know about you, but I plan to be exhausted at the end of it, okay? I just feel like there's a lot here. Now, last week in the message, and if you haven't seen last week's message, get onto the website and watch the video, but we talked about uh, buckets in last week's message. And uh, we had five different buckets, and the income that we have is all going to go into these five different buckets. And one of the buckets was the giving bucket. And um, all of the buckets were this size, really just to represent the fact that... um, in each of these buckets, there will be a proportionate amount of our income that's going to go into them. And this would be considered a reasonably sized bucket for giving, that it would have a proportionate amount of my income going into it so that I can both be funding the mission, as we're going to talk about in a minute, and helping the hurting along the way. All of that would come out of this giving bucket. The reality is, though, that for some of you, your debt bucket is so big or your lifestyle bucket is so big that your giving bucket is just a teeny tiny little bucket if it exists at all and and so I want to lay out for you before we get into this next section if this is the size of your bucket or even if this is the size of your giving bucket I want to be really honest with you as your pastor I want to lay out this right now that my goal is that this become the size of your giving bucket I don't want there to be any secret about that I don't want you to think that I'm soft pedaling on this at all, because I'm not. I want your giving bucket to become huge. And that's going to require for most of you the complete elimination of the debt bucket and the reduction of the lifestyle bucket in many cases. So that's the goal. No secrets about that at all. Everybody good with that? I'll, I'll, I'll give a moment for anybody to leave. All right, so with all of that laid out then, let's... I get into this uh, third one, uh, which we call uh, Fund the Mission. Um, So write this down first. Uh, My pastor does not believe in tithing. Write that down. My pastor does not believe in tithing. That's, amen. (laughs) I like this church, honey. Let's stay here. Um, I I get... um, I get that it's easier to teach tithing. Tithing is like, it's clean. 
It's like when I'm doing my budgeting, I get it's 10% and everybody understands it and it's very easy math and I get that it's easier. In fact, the small group curriculum that we're using with the videos and Joe Sangle teaches tithing in there and he takes, I don't know, four, five, six minutes to kind of teach about that and he teaches the 10%, he teaches tithing and this would be just one of the things that in the video I would just not precisely agree with uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, our, our giving. Um, it's, but it's easy, I get that it's easier just to teach 10%. But you see, I went, I went to college and seminary. I got a couple of degrees in theology, and not that you'd need the degrees in theology to understand what I'm gonna say next, but I took courses in both my undergrad and my grad degree on biblical interpretation. I learned how to interpret the Bible. I learned what are called the rules of interpretation so that when I stand before you every week, I'm following certain rules for how I understand the word of God and then explain it to you, and, and, and honestly, those rules are not that complicated and anybody can get them. You don't need degrees in theology to get that. But when I, when I apply those rules to the word of God on the matter of tithing, I can only come to one conclusion, that the New Testament believer is not obligated to tithe. Oh, come on, a gasp would have been good. Just something, you gotta give me something. The New Testament believer is not obliged to tithe. Exactly. See, it's so much better, isn't it, when we do that. Um, so, so, so let me say this. So Jesus came, the, the New Testament says, when Jesus was questioned about this, because people had this idea that he was abolishing the law, the Old Testament. And Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it to fulfill it. And what he meant by that is the entire Old Testament law actually pointed to Jesus. And so the character of the law, the moral aspects of the law, all of those still in effect and embodied in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. But the ceremonial aspects of the law all came to an end and were fulfilled in Jesus. He was the final. To use one example, um, uh, he was the final sacrifice for sin. And so there was no need for any more sacrifices. But every other ceremonial aspect of the law was fulfilled and culminated in Jesus Christ, so we didn't need those anymore. So let me give you a little list here. Um, no more animal sacrifices. I, I watched this morning, not a single person brought a lamb in here for me to kill in front of us today. Did not happen. I'm very thankful for that, by the way, uh, because that's messy. Um, so no... Um, uh, no uh, animal sacrifices, no feast days, though we do enjoy eating. And I see the pictures on uh, Instagram from your small groups. Um, so I know you like to eat, but no particular feast days um, or festivals, no pilgrimages. There's no particular city that we have to go to once a year. Uh, for the Jews, it was Jerusalem. We don't have to do that any, anymore. Um, no uh, priesthood. So there's no need for a mediator anymore between us and God because Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. And so every one of us, Hebrews tells us, every one of us are priests because we have that access before the Lord. So no priesthood anymore. Uh, no Sabbath anymore. The principle of rest is still in effect, but uh, Saturday as the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, not there anymore. The church meets on the first day of the week. Uh, no uh, temple uh, we are, uh, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. There's no centralized place of worship um, any longer. And I would add to this list also uh, tithing. And tithing, by the way, this is the last thing I'll say about it, um, in, in this whole part, um, 
Tithing was really a tax or a levy. The scriptures talk really clearly about tithes and offerings, and, and those were two different things. And the tithe was a levy that was put on people uh, because Israel wasn't just a community of believers, but it was also a nation. And so it needed to have money to kind of fund the operations of the nation, and that's what the tithe was. And, and we're, just, we're just not into that. So no tithing. Jesus' whole intent was to get at people's hearts and to get them thinking beyond uh, the uh, religious rituals that had been put into place uh, for them. And so uh, Matthew 23, look, look at these verses. Woe to you, he says to the this, uh, religious leaders, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and, and notice, have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, you should have kept the ceremonial aspects of the law, but, but, but you kept those and you didn't have these better things, all of the things that really matters of the heart. You should have had both of those things, but you didn't have both of them. And now this part is gone and we're just on this part and you guys are coming up with, z- with zeros. You got nothing going for you. It's so easy to be legalistic and so much more difficult to pursue heart and holiness. In other words, for some of you, you're a little nervous right now because you would want me, not everybody, but some of you are so trapped into, I just need someone to tell me how to live my life. And by that, I mean I need rules to hem me in. That's why so many people like religion. That's why so many people like to be in legalistic style churches that lay out a list and say, as long as you do the list, you're good. And and Jesus came and repudiated that in the strongest terms. This isn't about a list. It's not about rules. But it is easier to just have the rules, tick off the boxes, and then declare yourself to be good and right with God. Now, someone might be saying to me, Todd, aren't you afraid that, that giving will go down and the ministry will be underfunded now that you've pronounced tithing not to be a thing? And um, this is what I know. Uh, what God has entrusted to us here at Harvest will never be underfunded. Never. It'll never be underfunded. So long as you and I are committed to the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. God will supply what we need for what he's asked us to do and he's gonna do that through you and me. That's the way God provides. But it still leaves the question that we wanna know then, are there some biblical questions uh, or some biblical principles that are gonna help us to determine how much we ought to be giving? Because if we ditch the 10%, how do we know? What's the right amount? And so... um, This is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time here. Um, A little thing that I've put together, a little diagnostic, if you will, or a criteria to help us figure out what we ought to be giving, and it's it's gonna be different for all of us, but the criteria are gonna be the same. So I just call this measuring up in my giving, and you can use these 12 criteria uh, to determine whether or not you're in the right place, okay? It's gonna take some work on your part but measuring up in my uh, giving, and you can um, work furiously to write all of these down in the notes, or you can take advantage of the resource that we're gonna put up on the web this week. Either way, I'm good. All right, number one, let's start with ownership. 
Before I do anything else, I need to get that God owns it all. Before I start down this road and process, I gotta, I gotta figure out he owns it all. So uh, what's this, Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. So like everything in the world is his. He made it all. There was a time when there was nothing. He spoke it, it existed, it all belongs to him. So when I'm, when I'm thinking about my house, I'm thinking about my car, I'm thinking about my RSPs, I'm, I'm thinking about all the stuff I have in my house and the trinkets and all the collections I have and every single bit of clothing in my closet. I mean, all of it, all of it, all of it belongs to whom? Belongs to the Lord. It's all his. And so when you start to set out your budget and to figure out how much you're gonna give to him, you're really just talking about how much of it you're gonna give back to him of what he's given uh, to you because he literally owns it all. And by the way, the text tells us not only does he own all the things, but he also, look at the last part, he also owns, he also owns me, he owns you. He, he, it's all his. Everything is the Lord's. Now in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, and we won't turn to it, but I think you know the story, it's familiar enough. You have this master and he goes to three of his servants and he says to the three servants, I'm gonna give you five talents. I'm gonna give you an amount of money. That's what the talents are. I'm gonna give you this amount of money. I'm gonna give the second servant uh, two talents and the third servant one talent. I'm going away for a little bit. I want you guys to, to, to invest that, to work with that, to make more from what, what I've given to you. And so he goes away and then when he comes back and he, he checks in with these servants and the uh, two of them say, you know what, I've multiplied the thing that you gave me. And, and the one guy says, no, I just, I buried it in the ground because I was so afraid of you. And I didn't use it, and I didn't multiply it. Well, here's what's true in that parable. During the whole telling of the story from beginning to end, the money always belonged to the, the master. There was never a time that it belonged to the servants. Not for a second. They were always using the master's money. Now, when you see master, by the way, in a parable, just please always understand that that's the Lord. Okay, that's the Lord. And, and so you have, it's all the Lord's. And, and those three people, they're servants. And that's you and me. We're servants of the Lord. And everything that he entrusts into our hands, no matter what it is, our time, our talents, our treasures, whatever it is, it all belongs to him anyway. And we've been entrusted with it to multiply it and make it more than what it already is. And those with the right view of money get that God owns it all. They hold it loosely and they invest it uh, wisely. All right, ownership. And then secondly, this priority. I give, I give to God first. And this is drawn out of the Old Testament principle of first fruits that, that out of what God gives me, I want to take the first part of that and I want to give uh, that to the Lord. And um, I want to give God the best. It's almost like the first part, that's the best part because I have all of this and I want to carve out the portion that goes to the Lord. And so that's why I have this um, up here right now and I've got this in the wrong order. Let me just move this. How many people recognize that this is maple syrup and not moonshine? <laughs> I don't know what kind of church you think we are, but... Um, so I went to the market yesterday, I picked this up, and in fact, there's a lot to know about maple syrup in Canada, and, um, and uh, there's five different grades of maple syrup, but I could only get three of them yesterday, and these are the three most common anyway. There's the light, there's the medium, and there's the amber, and, um, 
And, and these represent uh, different grades, and you can even see probably from where you are how this one is much lighter, and you can see through it, and this one much darker, and you can't see through that one at all. And, and this represents, you know that all of the maple syrup is made in exactly the same way. That this doesn't represent different ways um, of, of making it. it. It's always all the same. You take the sap out of the tree and you get it into a large vat and you boil it down and the ratio is like 40 to 1. 40 gallons of, of sap, 1 gallon of maple syrup at the end of that. Exactly the same process for all three of these. What this represents is, this is the early syrup that comes in, say, February, March. And this is the later syrup a few weeks later as things start to warm up. And then when things get really warm, the sugar content of the sap goes way, way up. And so it produces the amber. And there's even a grade called dark amber that comes very late in the season. That's the maple syrup process. It just has to do with the time of year. So for my, some people think that it's just taste and the most popular one for most people is medium. But I'm gonna tell you for my money, this light stuff is the best of the best of the best. Okay, thank you, Blair. So Blair and I agree that this is the best. The lighter the syrup, it's, it's not overpowering. It's, it's, beautiful. it's beautiful to look at. You can see through it. It's golden and lovely and awesome in every way. And if you had come to the 11 o'clock service, you would have had an opportunity to get one of these bottles because I'm going to give them away. But sorry, 9 o'clock. This, this is the first fruits this is the first fruits of, of the season. Now the thing is that the season sometimes is really short and maybe the rest of this isn't even gonna come. So taking the very first, which I think is the best anyways, and taking the very first of it and saying that, Lord, this, this is for you and giving this as an offering to him away from myself so I don't benefit from it. That's really the principle here. And will I give the first part so, so we're not working out a budget where, okay, this is my income and now I'm gonna work through my expense lines and I'm gonna put my mortgage in and then I'm gonna put in my a car and then I'm gonna put in uh, other expenses and I'm gonna put in entertainment and then at the end I'm gonna see how much I have and that's where I decide how much I'm gonna give. That's gotta get flipped entirely on its head and the first fruits of what I earn is what I'm gonna give to the Lord. And so for, for me and Cheryl, I'm gonna tell you exactly how this works. I get paid every other Friday and I've set it up so that my pre-authorized offering comes out every other Friday on the very same day. And so sometime while I'm sleeping, I go to bed on Thursday night, and sometime while I'm sleeping, um, I get paid. And then sometime in the next morning, I can see that my offering comes out first. It's the very first thing that comes out every single time. It comes out before my mortgage. It comes out before any of our other expenses, our groceries, anything. It's the first thing that comes out of our budget. And I love that that happens. And I love that that fulfills the principles of, of, of the first fruits. That God gets the first part of what I've earned in a month and what he's entrusted to me. So does God get uh, the leftovers or does he get the first and best in your life? All right, ownership, priority. Ready for number three? Faith, thank you. Um, I have tested God as he suggested, this is the criteria of faith. And that suggestion comes in the number one verse used to teach tithing from Malachi chapter three, verse 10. Okay, the last book of the Old Testament. In the context of tithing, God says this, put me to the test and see if I will not uh, open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. 
Test me. Test me in this matter of giving. A push your faith. Challenge yourself to give more than you think that you can give. God wants you to trust him enough to test him in this. I mean, have you stretched your giving to the point that it hurts a little bit and that you don't precisely know how your budget is going to work? Even if you have debt or even if your income is small, because we're not prescribing that it has to be 10%, you're going to work it out, you and the Lord, and something ought to be going, even if you have debt, something ought to be going towards your giving. Even if your income is very small, something ought to be going out towards others. God wants you to test him in this matter of giving. Find a way to give an offering, even when your budget doesn't seem to work. Because a promise is attached to that, that God's going to be faithful to you. And God's going to bless you, really, in an extraordinary way. Opening literally the floodgates of heaven towards you. Reliability, number four. I give consistently. Now, uh, some of you are, your pattern of, of, um, of worship, of, of being here on weekends, your pattern is maybe two out of four and you're a regular part of our church family, but maybe half the time you're here or a little better than that. Uh, but one thing might be true of some people here, and I don't know any of the giving patterns, so I can look at everybody in the eye and not feel like I'm uh, pointing out anybody uh, in particular. If I happen to be looking at you and this applies to you, that's the Holy Spirit. Um, but some of you only give when you're here. And so we call that user pay Christianity. That's what that is. I mean, that's like, um, that's like going to the Cineplex to watch a movie. I mean, when you go to the Cineplex to watch a movie, you pay to go in and watch the movie. You have to buy a ticket, okay? And, and um, n- none of you are sending money to the Cineplex on the weeks you don't go. Correct? Nobody's like, oh, I can't make it to the movies this week. Honey, we better write a check, get that in the mail. <laughs> or maybe we'll double up. Next time we go, we'll double up. That's what we'll do. We'll, we'll give twice because we didn't get to go last week. 10.50, please, could you charge me for an extra ticket? We didn't get to come last week. See, we don't do that for the movies, but some of us have the mentality that that's what we do with, with uh, our worship attendance. We're only gonna give when we come. And, and the reality is, if, and I'm not talking to guests right now. I'm not talking to guests. But I am talking to those where you identify, this is my church family. This is what I belong to. Okay, and so when you're not here, I just wanna let you know something because I know you're not here. It's like a tree falling in the woods. Okay, it doesn't make a noise. But when you're not here, we still set up the chairs. And we still turn on the lights and we still have worship and I still preach and there's still children's ministry and there's people in the parking lot. We rent this facility. All of that still happens even if you don't show up. So in other words, if you're part of the family, we still have to pay for all of that. That's part of what it means to be a church and to bear the burden together for all of this. And so I need to be a person who gives consistently. Um... And the best way really to ensure consistency in your giving is through our pre-authorized offering, the uh, PA, what we call our PAO. Is there something on the screen behind me? Well, look at that. I got one of those right here in my hand as well. And you're going to get these on the way out today, or did you get them on the way in? You got them on the way in. 
And you're probably wondering, that's awfully presumptuous. And if you're a guest, could you just tear it up right now? Um, because we, we didn't necessarily intend that for you. But this is a way to sign up for that. And, and um, a good percentage of people in our church, this is the way they, they give. Cheryl and I uh, give this way. And it's super reliable and it makes it consistent. And it's a blessing to others. And I, I love that Paul said this. You say, well, have you got a verse for this? And I, I do actually. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, where Paul's telling them, to collect their offering on the first day of the week, which is when the church was, was, um, was meeting. And so um, Paul's encouraging the regularity, the consistency, uh, the reliability of our giving so that the work of Jesus Christ can be uh, fully uh, funded. Number five, secrecy. I don't think or brag about what I give. So once I've, once I've decided what I'm going to give and I determined that in my own heart, I'm not going to think about it anymore, okay? Um, I'm just not going to think about it anymore. Um, the point of secret giving isn't to keep it secret from others, but to keep it secret from yourself. Did you know that? The point of secret giving is not to keep it secret from others, but to keep it secret from yourself. You're, you're actually the problem when it comes to giving. We, we practice secret giving here in the sense there's a cone of silence over who gives. And, and like really, I think only one person in our church even knows how much everybody gives. That's the person who handles our finances and sends out the receipts. Nobody else really knows. Okay, so, so we have the cone of silence over, over all of that. But some of us hide behind the secrecy because we give so little we don't want other people to know. Well, I sure hope my giving's private. And you're hoping that because you don't give very much. And, and you're kind of ashamed of that and feel guilty about it and you don't want people to know. But Jesus really wants you to know that the secrecy is all about keeping it secret from yourself. Check, check this out in Matthew 6. So when you give to the needy, this is Matthew 6, 2, two to 4. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. So the, the person who's giving and, and making a big deal of it and look at this and they named a building after me and blah, 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 okay? But when you, when you give to the needy, do not let, notice, do not let your left hand know what, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Not do not let your left hand know what your neighbor's right hand is doing. We're talking about your two hands. So I'm giving like this and I'm keeping my right hand over here. Because I, I, don't, I don't want them to know. And your father so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the whole, the whole thing is, is to do your best to keep it secret from yourself because of this tendency we might have to brag about it. Or to think well of ourselves. Look how much I gave. I got my receipt at the end of the year. Do you see, see how much we gave? It's awesome. And we start to get a little uh, proud about it. So the idea is to keep it secret from ourselves if that were even possible to just not think about it very much after we've said it and worked out our budget and this is how much and then we're just gonna kind of dismiss it from our minds a little bit and so really I just put down this phrase, uh, set it and forget it. Set it and forget it. Don't be dwelling on how generous you are. And then having uh, mentioned that, by the way, number six is generosity. <laughs> I sure hope you are generous and that's why you need to keep it a secret from yourself. So generosity, I give liberally from what I have. Um, what I have found is, um, and maybe you find this true as well, 
that uh, people who want to talk about how much they ought to give to the church, like, uh, I have a question about this, Pastor, about how much should I really be giving to the church? Does that person, <coughs> sorry, are they seeking out how to give more by asking that question or seeking how to give less? What's your guess? Yeah, th- that question is usually about how can I wiggle out of what I'm seeing or the biblical requirements, Pastor, can you help me give less? Um, so what is, rest- what is esteemed repeatedly in the Bible is generosity. So many verses that kind of head in this direction. And Paul, I just want to look at one of them. Paul esteems the Macedonian believers in his letter to the Corinthian believers. And he said this about them. They overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Paul had just said that they were actually in poverty themselves. But they overflowed in a wealth of generosity, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So for them, this was an over-the-top, definitely unsparingly lavish expression of their generosity. And later in, in first, or 2 Corinthians 9, he just said, uh, you will be, using that as an example, you will be enriched in every way for your generosity. Again, the promise of God that if we're generous in this way, God's gonna bless that. Okay, generosity, and then can we just notch it up a bit and say number seven is sacrifice. I give in a way that costs me. In Mark 12, 41 through 44, we won't look at the passage, but Jesus tells us of a widow who put in everything that she had. And there were rich people that were coming and they were putting in, Jesus said, large sums of money. He makes no value judgment on that. They were just doing it. He didn't say that their heart was wrong in doing it or they were making a big deal of it. It was just observed that they were giving a lot and she came and she just gave a little bit But Jesus said she actually put in everything she had, her last pennies. And um, if, if, if the rich people were giving generous gifts, we would just say that the widow was giving a sacrificial gift, correct? That, that this was just ratcheted up another notch. And the question for us would be, is your giving sacrificial? Does your giving actually cost you something? And if you go back to the tithing thing, if you think that giving 10% is the standard and that makes you good with God, you're really missing the point. That's a little bit of the checkmark Christianity that some of us are comfortable with, but isn't exactly biblical. For some, tithing is actually a bit of an out. Because not only is it easy, but it doesn't actually pinch the budget in any particular way. And doing anything rigid and legalistically isn't the means of expressing your commitment and love for the Savior anyway. It's not the way you show your passion for the mission that he's actually entrusted to us. For some, 10% is definitely a stretch. For some, 10% is not only generous, it is sacrificial. But for many of us who have a good income and pour so much into that lifestyle budget, 10% is a bit of an out. It allows me to check the box without considering that I could and should do more. And for many, the 10% tithe is not only not sacrificial, it isn't even generous. Um, Let's listen to C.S. Lewis on this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. So obviously he doesn't believe in tithing either. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. 
If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Nothing more needs to be said there. Number eight, capacity. I give as a percentage of income. And this has to do with planning. If we're not budgeting in some fashion, we're not gonna think this through as we ought to, then it's simply just not gonna happen. Uh, you have to look at this, you have to consider it, discuss it, and then make decisions and stick, uh, stick by them. And this can certainly be a challenge in, in a family where you have a spender and a saver, uh, where two people love Jesus, it's still gonna be a pretty tough uh, discussion, where there are uh, homes where you're married to an unbeliever and you're trying to work out these principles, but that can be really difficult because you're married to someone who doesn't love Jesus and doesn't want any money going out of the home, and that's something you need to work out uh, between you and the Lord as well. But sometimes we're just asking the wrong question when we get into this matter of budgeting and capacity and doing it as a percentage of income. We ask the wrong question. This is what Andrew Murray said. How different our standard is from Christ's. We ask how much a man gives. Christ asks how much he keeps. And so we've got this, on the, we've got this kind of heading the wrong direction. We have to be intentional and figure out our capacity. That's not gonna happen by accident, as I said. 1 Corinthians 16, again, one and two. Uh, this is all measured as God has prospered us. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. How has God prospered you? And based on that now, I'm gonna carve out the piece that I'm giving back to fund the mission. Number nine, joy. I love giving. I love giving. Practice that. Just say it. Okay, we'll keep working on it. All right. But that's what, that's what Paul saw in those Macedonians, 2 Corinthians 8, 2. There, he saw their abundance of joy. And then in the next chapter, he makes the point that God loves a cheerful giver. And if joy is the dominant emotion or characteristic of your giving, then you're in a good place and, and you're measuring up to what God wants from you. There ought to be joy in that. You ought to be looking at it and just going, I love that we get to do this. I love that we can help those who are hurting. I, I love that we can fund the ministry. I love that we're blessing our family. All of that just makes me so happy. Yeah. I hope you have that. And then that flows out of, by the way, number 10, a willingness. I want to give. I want to do this. I'm not, I'm not doing it grudgingly. I'm not, I'm not feeling guilted into it. I don't feel like it's an obligation. I don't want you to feel any obligation from me that's between you and the Lord. But I, I really want to do this. I, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul said, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And from the perspective of the leaders of this church, it truly is a free will gift. We don't police it. We don't bill you for, your, for services. By the way, that is the practice in contemporary Jewish synagogues because they, they're not permitted to collect money on, on the Sabbath when they get together on, on, during their meeting days. They can't collect money and so they literally invoice the members of their synagogues, invoice them for services and they just pay the bill. Do you think we should go to that here? No, we don't, probably don't need to vote on that. Um, so... Um, yeah, so we don't do that, and so really it is a free will offering, and we want you to want to do it. 
And if you don't want to do it, hear me, not only I'm telling you not to tithe, but if you don't want to do it, don't do it. If it's not flowing willingly from your heart, I don't want you despising the Lord by giving grudgingly and feeling like you're only doing it because you have to. God's gonna fund this ministry through people who are joyful and willing, willingly giving their gifts, all right? Number 11, couple more here, investment-minded. I see my giving in light of eternal rewards, eternal returns. Uh, your giving, and I think Joe Sangal makes this point in the videos, your giving is not an expense, but an investment. We have to get this mindset. It's not, it's not part of my expense lines. Back in Matthew 6, 20, a passage that we started in um, when we started this series, uh, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's asking you to get a long view of life, a long view of, of, of budgeting, a long view of returns on investment. Your ROI is in heavenly dividends. And some great verses here, Proverbs 11, uh, 24 and 25, just, just see how the returns come later. One gives freely, okay, that's the investment, but grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want, no ROI, no return on that investment. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. You bring the blessing, bless your family, helping the hurting, funding the mission. You're gonna be enriched for that. It's gonna come back. One who waters is gonna be watered. That's God's economy. That's the returns he's promising on the investment. 2 Corinthians 9, a 6 makes the very same point. The point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's a wonderful, amazing, unexpected, surprising, over-the-top, generous backflow of God's blessing on us if we'll invest in eternal things. And then 12, mission-minded. I know that the, this funds the ministry that God gave to us. We have a mission in front of us to glorify God by making disciples and planting churches. That's the whole thing. Find people who don't yet know Jesus Christ and introduce them to Jesus Christ and, and do the very thing we announced before the message, get new churches started in places that need those churches. That's the whole mission that Jesus left for us to do. And that needs to be funding. Your spending, actually, if I, if I knew how you spent your money and if I knew how you gave your money, I would know whether or not you believe what I just said. Do you believe in that mission or not? Do you believe that we're supposed to be making disciples? Do you believe that we're supposed to be planting churches? If you believe that, that's gonna be reflected in your budget. If your budget doesn't show any indication that you're funding the mission, then I don't believe that you believe that. Again, it's a matter between you and the Lord. But this is the challenge. We have to fund the mission. And this isn't a new thing, by the way. In, in Acts chapter one, Jesus said um, uh, that the Holy Spirit was gonna come upon them and they were gonna be witnesses to him in the whole world. Go out, make disciples, plant churches. And then in Acts chapter four, just three chapters later, what do you see? The believers in the church lining up in the context of their worship, to lay their gifts, to bring offerings, lay them at the feet of the apostles for one reason, to fund the mission. We believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead. 
We believe he died to purge us of our sins. We want to tell everybody about that. That's going to take some money. Somebody's got to pay for people to go out and do that. To establish these churches and raise up a witness for the Lord. That was happening in Acts chapter 4. And so it's no surprise that it needs to continue to happen today. And if you're part of this church family, then you're saying that you agree with how we do ministry. That you agree with this. You agree with the mission. You agree with the manner in which we're carrying out the mission. And therefore, before the Lord, there needs to be this sense in your giving that you're mission-minded, that you know that what you give funds the ministry that Jesus has entrusted to us. All right, that was a lot, right? That was a lot. There's a lot there to work on, and if you use these 12 biblical criteria to measure of what you ought to give, I believe that God's Holy Spirit is going to be released in your life in power. And God is going to be pleased with that. Amen? Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.